Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Rob Godby, Interim Dean at the School of Business and Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Wyoming. And Wyoming is the subject of our conversation today. It's been a major energy-producing state for over a century and is by far the nation's largest producer of coal. But production in recent years has declined substantially, raising major challenges for the state's energy economy and its public revenues. And with the need to reduce emissions much further, the outlook for Wyoming's energy future is highly uncertain. One quick production note, the audio quality for today's episode is a little below our usual standard. We apologize for that, but assure you that Rob's insights will make today's episode a worthwhile listen. Stay with us. All right, Rob Godby from the University of Wyoming. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So, Rob, we are going to talk all about Wyoming today, Wyoming's energy history, Wyoming's energy present, Wyoming's energy future. But before we do that, um, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy or environmental topics. So how did you end up working in this field? All right. Well, it's going to be kind of a roundabout story. So I grew up in a a town in in central Ontario, up in Canada. Um, It's a primary industry there is, is tourism now, but at the time it was an industrial town as well. Um, Got interested in economics. Um, It turns out that that town was struggling through most of my childhood. I didn't really realize that. In fact, I didn't realize that we were kind of a Rust Belt town until a New York Times full spread story about my hometown that was in the paper only a couple of years ago. And the the spin on the story was about free trade and and Canadians um, and how it was hitting former industrial towns, and there was my hometown, and I'd never thought of it like that. My parents were in the public sector. They'd not been affected by those things, but that got me, uh, that kind of background, I think, is what drew me to economics, uh, primarily macroeconomic topics, and I was always really interested in kind of the natural environment and how that affected macroeconomic outcomes in particular, which historically has not been talked about a lot in the environmental economics literature. And then from there, uh, moving to Wyoming for my first uh, real academic job, uh, you know, kind of landed in the middle of energy country. And it was kind of a natural fit because where I had grown up uh, or spent a lot of my summers uh, was a logging place. And so, you know, commodity dependence um, was also something that I was used to. So I just kind of fell into it as kind of just things that were comfortable and and. Uh, areas that I was interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So um, we're going to talk about both the uh, the challenges that Wyoming is facing currently, uh, and also maybe some of the opportunities that, uh, that it has. Uh, but before we do that, could you give us maybe just like a super quick thumbnail sketch of the early days of energy development in Wyoming? Sort of how did it start and what were the commodities and what, what did it all look like in the beginning? Yeah, so I think people might be surprised to know how long uh, Wyoming has been involved in energy extraction. In fact, if you look at Wyoming's history, you know, Wyoming's kind of iconic symbol is the cowboy. Uh, Here at the University of Wyoming, that's our mascot. It's also the state mascot, uh, the bucking horse, those sorts of, you know, Western iconic images. But truly, 
the economy in Wyoming and what people have done in Wyoming has involved as much or more energy production than it ever has that kind of ranching agriculture. Um, oil, I think, was first noted here in around 1839, 1840. Um, Bonneville, um, Captain Bonneville, I guess was his name, he's kind of in the fur trade. Uh, noticed these oil springs in the midst of uh, Wyoming. Uh, the Native Americans used it for things like paint. They didn't really burn it or anything like that. Um, and then after that, it was often used for lubricants. Um, when the Union Pacific came through and statehood occurred in the uh, 1880s, um, oil production was already underway. And so oil and gas have really been a part of Wyoming's economy since the very beginning. In fact, uh, a historical incident that people are probably, you know, maybe you've heard of, uh, the Teapot Dome scandal, which was until Watergate, the biggest corruption scandal in American government history, I suppose, along with maybe the building of the Union Pacific. Uh, but both of those things occurred in Wyoming uh, or involved Wyoming. Teapot Dome is actually in Wyoming and that was uh, a naval oil uh, reserve. And so, again, through the 1920s, right through to now, Wyoming has been a major oil and gas producer. Coal production occurred here, too. Um, in the 1840s, it was noted by the original fur traders that were coming through the area uh, that there was coal. Um, and the Powder River Basin, which is the largest coal basin really in the country, um, at least in terms of production, it was noted as early as about 1860. Uh, that there was coal there and production began for coal even before the railroad got here for local use, but certainly when the railroad came through, uh, coal production along the original Union Pacific line um, was a, a staple of, of many communities along the way, places like Hannah, Wyoming or, or Carbon, Wyoming was one of the original coal mines. Um, so energy production has been um, basically a way of life in Wyoming since before statehood. Wow, that's fascinating. I, di I didn't know so much of that. Um, so, you know, you've given us a whirlwind uh, historical tour. Let's uh, let's catch up to the present. So where does Wyoming stack in the order of energy producers uh, among U.S. states uh, in terms of, you know, the major energy sources that you've talked about uh, so far? And also maybe in terms of renewable energy, new energy sources like wind that I know is uh, becoming an important part of the Wyoming energy mix. Right. So, so it depends on what data you look at and, and what year. Um, so Wyoming, uh, in terms of traditional total energy produced, has basically over the last two decades typically been the second largest energy producer in the country behind Texas, uh, produced uh, about 40% of the total energy Texas does. Um, in recent years, it's fallen to third behind Pennsylvania. And that's really due to the decline uh, in the coal industry more than anything else. Um, in terms of commodities, Wyoming is by far the number one coal producer in the country, even though there's been a significant decline in coal. Um, last year, Wyoming produced about 41% of the country's coal and, and Wyoming has been producing about 40% of the country's coal since the early 2000s. Um, we, we typically are eighth or ninth total production in natural gas and oil. And so that production continues primarily from conventional, but also more recently unconventional wells. 
Um, Wyoming is when there is actually uranium production is often the largest producer in the country of uranium. And as well, in renewable energy, Wyoming was one of the first places to actually have very large industrial wind farms, you know, the um, utility scale wind farms. Um, and we had quite a boom here beginning in the late 90s through till about 2010. Um, and then what happened here in Wyoming was we ran out of transmission capacity. And so building new farms ceased. Wyoming right now, I think we stack, it depends on how you count the new wind farms coming online. There's a significant amount of new renewable energy coming online in Wyoming. Almost all of that is wind. Um, and we typically are around 15th in the country in total um, wind potential energy production, so electricity production. Um, the, the real draw to Wyoming is basically the, the natural topography here creates kind of a venturi effect as you cross the continental divide. And so some of the best onshore uh, winds in the country are actually located in Wyoming. And so early renewable energy development occurred in Wyoming. In fact, some of the original Department of Energy designs for wind turbines um, were out here in the mid 1990s. And in fact, one of those turbines only until about five or six years ago still held the record for most uh, electricity production from a single turbine. Huh. That's interesting. Um... Cool. So, uh, so obviously Wyoming, you know, it's a major player in U.S. energy production across, you know, almost every uh, type of energy source. Um, but can you help us understand now how important is the energy industry for Wyoming's economy, for these macroeconomic uh, issues that you started off being so interested in, things like jobs, economic output, tax revenue, other uh, metrics like that? Sure. So, the bottom line is energy is basically Wyoming's economy. I mean, it's by far the number one sector. If you just look at traditional fossil fuels, um, total state GDP that's created by that sector is about 25% of the total value of the state's output. And I'll say this, while Wyoming is maybe ranking third right now in total energy production, it is by far the number one domestic exporter of energy. Almost all of the energy produced in Wyoming is exported somewhere else because Wyoming is also the country's least populous state with just over 500,000 people. And so um, energy exports in terms of either raw commodities like oil or natural gas, uh, coal on coal trains, or actually produced energy like electricity on transmission lines um, are the primary outputs um, in the Wyoming economy in terms of value. So about 25% of state product, uh, about 12% of state employment, depends on the year, of course, after COVID that changed a little bit. And probably most critically, about it's responsible for about 50% of Wyoming's um, general revenues uh, for you know, public, public goods. So it's very important and, and it's always been kind of the front sector, at least um, through most of the 20th century, you know, or since at least World War II, for sure. Um, agriculture was once very large here, but now it's about 2%. Uh, the next largest um, sector in the Wyoming economy is actually tourism, maybe unsurprisingly, since the world's first national park is also mostly located in Wyoming, Yellowstone. Uh, there's also Teton National Park, places like Devil's Tower. 
uh, kind of those iconic Western places. But total tourism, uh, if you look at it broadly, is only maybe 5% of the state's uh, gross state products. So energy is the industry out here. Yeah. And so with that in mind, you know, in the last uh, several years, really, but especially in 2020, uh, there has been a steep decline in demand for coal in the United States, um, to a lesser extent around the world as well. And so how has that downturn in coal in particular uh, affected Wyoming? And, you know, when we extrapolate to the future, how might further declines in coal demand, uh, whether in the U.S. or, or globally, uh, affect um you know, the, the economy of, of the state? Yeah, so this has been a real challenge. Um, I'll say a couple things. So first of all, oil, gas, and coal sometimes are referred to as, you know, the three-legged stool of, of Wyoming's revenue sources. Um, our tax structure here is really dependent on taxing other people because, uh, you know, over 50% of our general revenues come basically from different types, severance uh, or property taxes, which is just another extraction tax on those commodities, um, or federal mineral royalties. Those are responsible for about 50% of the state's revenue. Of course, oil and gas, as everybody uh, is aware, uh, they are very cyclical. The thing about coal is that um, the rise in coal production in Wyoming is relatively recent. While coal has always been produced here, the really large scale production that people think of, these large open pit mines that are in the Powder River Basin, um, they didn't really uh, take off until the late 1970s with the oil crisis and the need for domestic energy. Um, Come the 1980s, Wyoming surpassed West Virginia as the largest coal producer in the country. And that's really because there's an old joke out here that all you need to mine coal in Wyoming or the Powder River Basin is a three iron. Um, <laughs> there are massive coal deposits just below the surface. You know, they may be a mile wide and hundreds of feet high. And so you just really need to open them up. And the thing about these mines is that the larger they get, the cheaper the coal production is. You, you can then manage economies of scale. You add that to rail deregulation in the 1980s, and suddenly it was very affordable to export coal long distances. So Wyoming coal may travel as far as 2,000 miles away. So why is that important with respect to the coal downturn? Well, first of all, about 94% of the coal produced in Wyoming uh, is exported somewhere else. So we burn about 6% of the coal produced, and then we export about 40% of that electricity. It's all used for electricity here. Um, so that downturn in coal came as a real surprise because if you were to kind of, literally this is how the state forecast coal production, they just drew a trend line. And it was basically a straight line upwards from the 1980s until about 2008 and the recession. And then of course, what happened during that recession was the fracking boom and uh, sudden massive increases in natural gas production across the country that really drove down those prices and natural gas is a substitute in electricity production for coal, started to drive coal out of the market. And so in the last decade, we've seen coal uh, production in Wyoming decline from a high of just in the Powder River Basin of over 460 tons 
down last year to right around 220 million tons of coal. So we're at about a 50% decline in just over a decade. Now, again, it's, it's a massive reduction in the value of coal production, but because of those economies of scale, um, the employment impacts have not been quite as large. The total number of coal miners a decade ago in Wyoming was a little over 7,000. The end of last year, it was about 4,500. So a major change, almost 50% decline, but not the huge numbers that people are used to hearing about in places like Appalachia, where you know there may be 20, 30,000 miners still left in, in West Virginia's coal sector. Um, but it was a major impact to those communities that depend on, on coal production. And so the coal decline is, has been really significant to Wyoming in part because that non-cyclical nature of coal production that's occurred over the past 40 years, um, policymakers in the state turn to coal revenues as kind of the basis, not only of general revenues in the state, which are split approximately a third, a third, a third with coal, oil, and natural gas, um, but it is, pretty much the singular source of revenue for Wyoming school systems. And that's because they were trying to protect school systems from that you know, cyclical um, pricing that occurs in, in oil and natural gas. So not only has it hit uh, regions of the state very hard, um, but it's also really created some difficult choices in terms of, of public services funding. Uh, because our, our K-12 school system in particular here is very dependent on coal revenues. Yeah, and, and we were talking before this podcast about, you know, what's happening uh, at, at your institution, the University of Wyoming, and how, you know, just in the last, uh, you know, week or so, there's been reorganization, and uh, a lot of that is tied to the downturn in revenue associated with coal. Yeah, in the past, um, well, our revenues over the past I'd say five years at the University of Wyoming, just the state support. Wyoming, the University of Wyoming was very lucky. It's uh, probably the public institution with the highest amount of state support, and that came from the energy sector. Uh, unfortunately, with the energy decline, that dependence has really hurt us, and we've lost about 25% of our budget, and that's led to some really significant cuts and, and now reorganizations at the university as we try to downsize and also find new sources of revenue that other higher education institutions you know, were forced to chase years ago with different uh, macroeconomic cycles that led to downturns in their revenues. We're, we're really getting hit by those now. Yeah. And so... You know, with all these challenges for public finances and, uh, you know, to an extent, employment and other impacts that the state is experiencing with regard to the downturn in coal, what types of policies or other measures are lawmakers at the state level or maybe at the federal level um, kind of thinking about to try to address some of these challenges? And of course, as we think about the challenge of climate change and the need to reduce emissions dramatically, you know, that almost certainly means using less coal in the future. So how, how are they thinking about, um, you know, planning for that future uh, where there, you know, may well be much less coal uh, coming out of the ground in Wyoming? So this is a really complicated question. It's especially complicated in a place like Wyoming. So I'll do my best to not be political here um, and to kind of uh, address those. So the first thing is like the local challenge. And the local challenge really began not with climate change concerns, uh, but actually fracking. Um, fracking in the rest of the country really changed 
the coal market. And I should also say that um, Wyoming was the play in the country for natural gas in the decade before the 2010s. And that was, and so we, you know, if you were to drive anywhere in Wyoming, not only did you have to get out of the way between 2000 and 2010, because you might be passing a truck in the, uh, you know, in the oncoming lane with a, a very large wind turbine blade or um, tower components, but you'd also have to get out of the way of, you know, the rig components that were coming down the road because there was so much natural gas production going on here. That literally disappeared almost overnight um, in the 2009-2010 period between the Great Recession and uh, then the advent of fracking. Um, so the state was hit kind of with a double whammy around 2010. The, the decline in coal began and simultaneously natural gas, the bottom really dropped out of the uh, expansion in the extraction industry. Existing wells continued to produce, but that expansion stopped. Um, so what has it done? Well, it, it's really challenged the state locally in terms of this revenue uh, problem. And, and Wyoming has kind of a, I call it the the double curse. So very often resource economists talk about the resource curse for extractive dependent um, states or, or regions. And that's certainly true in Wyoming. We have one of the, we have a very good K-12 system. It's been very well funded. Regionally speaking, you know, students do very well in federal comparisons and standardized tests and so on. Um, and we have a relatively high graduation rate uh, out of high school, um, above 80% typically. Um, but the university graduation rate is actually quite low here. And that's really because of these high paying jobs that have been available for quite a while in the energy sector. Um, when those started to go away, the lack of that kind of workforce, that well-educated workforce um, has been a challenge to economic development. And as well in extractive dependent regions, very often you see less development in other sectors, and that's certainly true here. So if you look at the proportion of the economy that's in you know, high value financial services or uh, manufacturing, things like that, it's quite low even compared to regional comparators, other states around us. And that's, that's the traditional resource curse that we see domestically in places like the United States. Um, but additionally, we have what is this, this revenue curse, and that's because our revenue model here is almost entirely dependent on taxing other people. Um, some people in sociology have called this an addictive economy, and we are certainly um, dealing with that. So we have the simultaneous challenge of looking for new economic development and diversifying the economy. At the same time, we have to diversify our tax structure. And at the best of times, raising taxes is difficult. Uh, Raising taxes in the West is potentially even more difficult just because of the kind of libertarian um, political culture out here, um, you know, low taxes, those less government. And so that has really been a challenge here. Um, then you add to that fact that Wyoming is very small, um, very small markets. It's difficult to attract companies to Wyoming in these other high value industries because we don't have any large cities. We have two cities of 60,000 people, not very large local markets. And we're in a pretty tough league here. I mean, I tell people economic development in Wyoming is 
like being a triple a baseball team and you're forced to play the Yankees every week. Um, you know, we're next to Denver, Salt Lake, the Rapid City area, Boise is nearby, even Billings, which, you know, just uh, this week was named the, the Wall Street Journal identified it as the top or hottest real estate market in the country right now. It's difficult to play in that market and attract people to Wyoming. Um, so those are kind of the regional challenges, this tax challenge, and of course, attracting economic development is also difficult if the quality of amenities and public services might be in question if we haven't sorted out our tax issues. How are we going to pay for those? Are we willing to tax ourselves for those? And that is a really tough conversation. You add to that now the, the global and you know, national concern about climate change, and things become even tougher. While coal is kind of the poster child for the energy decline, especially in Wyoming, um, natural gas is a significant part. Again, it's about a third of the energy revenues, broadly speaking. A lot of people believe natural gas is where coal was maybe a decade, a little bit more ago. So we're not only looking at secular declines or structural declines in coal, but probably in natural gas. And then behind that, you know, there's the real question of oil production. Um, and how that may change in the near future. So all of those climate change effects um, come to bear indirectly. Uh, we are a state that does not have renewable portfolio standards. You know, our politicians dealing with those regional issues find it very difficult to take action on climate change uh, because you know front and center here is the trade-off. Um, in moving towards a less carbon intensive economy, this is going to require transition and displacement. And, you know, we are one of those epicenters of where fossil fuel production occurs. And so there are concerns about, well, how do you transition the citizens in those economies uh, to something else and, and allow them to continue their lives in, in the way that they would like to? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really big challenge. And I, you know, someone who's been working on related issues over the last couple of years, and, and you do too, of course, Rob. I mean, for me, Wyoming is kind of at the top of the list in terms of places that are likely to experience some of the biggest challenges, you know, as we seek to dramatically reduce emissions. I think you're right. I mean, and this is not to downplay the challenge anywhere, but Wyoming's is a little bit different. And you mentioned at the top, you know, about federal policy. I think Wyoming is kind of a little bit invisible to federal policymakers because, in you know, if we talk about the coal sector, the number of jobs involved in the coal sector here is, you know, much smaller on, in total magnitude than places like Appalachia, just because of, that's why Wyoming is so competitive, right? It needed fewer people. Um, so the numbers don't get immediate attention. Um, the other thing is that very typically, uh, if you look at West Virginia, other states, and you've done this work, Daniel, um, you know that the dependence on those revenues is much lower. Really, the only other state that probably has an equivalent kind of dependence on fossil fuel revenues is Alaska. Um, you know, there's a very short list of that dependence. And so we often see um, that transition and displacement issue as being a very local issue. We're talking about a power plant closing down or a mine closing. But in a place like Wyoming, the affected community is not just a single place, it's the entire state. And so the, the complexity of how you make those changes and, and often how you might help is much more difficult because it really requires understanding the whole economy and it, and it may require some policies 
that are, are maybe a little harder for people to get their heads around because you don't directly support or try to help a particular place. You may have to do things like um, look at total federal revenues going to a state and try to create a guarantee on those so that there's some ability to reinvest in new sectors uh, because you know it's awfully hard to change uh, when you need investment funds to do it and your revenues have dried up and the people that you're going to have to turn to for taxes are the ones that are suffering the most. So you end up in a political bind and you end up just in a, a revenue shortfall that makes it very difficult to transition. And that's where you, you know, in our federalized system anyway, you typically look externally to the federal government in DC. Yeah, absolutely. So Rob, we've been talking about, you know, energy pretty much exclusively over the last uh, 25 minutes or so. And, and we only have a couple of minutes left, but, but I don't wanna stop our conversation without asking about the environmental consequences of all the energy development uh, that's happened in Wyoming over the years. So when you think about sort of today and potentially in the future, what are some of the biggest environmental or public health challenges that Wyoming is facing or is likely to face as a result of this long history of energy development? Yeah, so the, so Wyoming does not have those kind of long-term health issues like black lung that you see in the East. Uh, and that's mainly because mining here is highly mechanized. Um, workers tend to sit in, you know, small control rooms, either in a large machinery or, or off-site away from the mining where it's mostly automated. Um, so the health issues are relatively minor. Uh, reclamation is a big deal here, but reclamation, because large-scale mining really happened in the 70s, there actually is a pretty good record here. I know people might challenge me on this, but relatively speaking, it's not the mountaintop removal that you see, say, in the east. Uh, there is a good record of reclamation here. It can always probably be better. Um, but there is a very large reclamation liability that we need to be very aware of because of the scale of the mining out here. And so the real concern is ensuring that as the financial health of the companies uh, involved in mining declines, that we ensure that the resources are there to actually finish the reclamation. In the past, it's been done and it's been done well. Um, you know, lots of pictures that I show my students of fields that no one would ever know had ever been a coal mine previously. Uh, but the real concern is the future and the financial health of these companies as they decline. Um, we've got to make sure this liability is covered because there is a very large liability given the scale of mining out here. And it's a similar problem in the oil and gas industry. Uh, and those are not unlike other places like Appalachia or the Midwest um, where energy extraction occurs. Uh, it's something that we have to keep our eye on and you can't be blind to the fact that the sector is declining. And so we have to be aware that in the past where reclamation was probably not in question with respect to the health of these coal mining companies, um, there are real concerns now that they will have the resources to do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an interesting and important issue. Well, Rob, uh, there are so many more questions that we could talk about uh, uh, over uh, Wyoming's energy history and its future and these environmental issues as well, but we're out of time. So I wanna ask you what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, uh, something that you've read or watched or heard that might even just be tangentially related to what we've been talking about today that you think our listeners might enjoy. And I'm gonna uh, just briefly log roll for a minute here. And um, based on what we were just talking about this, this issue of reclamation, uh, point to a paper that I just published with uh, Alan Krupnik, Ji Sheng Sha, and Alex Thompson of RFF 
on the costs of reclaiming abandoned oil and gas wells. So this is something that you know is an issue in Wyoming and in many other parts of the country. There are literally millions of abandoned oil and gas wells across the United States, and it costs money to plug them. So we uh, we have a new paper estimating how much uh, it's likely to cost and what the sort of factors are that drive those costs. The paper is called "Decommissioning Orphaned and Abandoned Oil and Gas Wells." New Estimates and Cost Drivers. It's in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, so I'm done log rolling now, uh, Rob. I'll pass it over to you. <laughs> well, I will just make a plug that that's super important. I mean, you asked about reclamation. Typically, people think about coal mining out here, but that has been our number one reclamation problem in Wyoming is orphan gas wells from that gas boom I talked about a decade ago. Um, so Top of the reading stack, a uh, couple books that I've really enjoyed recently, and I think they're really relevant to what's going on. And they're kind of background papers or background books. The first is one that's been around a few years now by a, a researcher named Gretchen Baca. Uh, the book is called The Grid. And with our turn to kind of electrification, broadly speaking, across the economy, you know, a lot of people, when they ask, where does the electricity come from? They'll just say the wall socket. You know. It's a really complex system behind that. And that complex system then drives energy demand and how we do things affects our lives in so many ways. She did an amazing job with this book called The Grid in just explaining um, how it's related to us, the history and how it might, you know, what the challenges may be going forward in adapting that grid to renewable sources and the kinds of new demands that we may have with the electrification of the transportation sector. So I, I really highly recommend that. It's very readable. Uh, you know, typically when you read about the grid, it's written by engineers, which, you know, no offense to engineers, but it's sometimes a little drier reading. The other one I really like is by Leah Stokes, and it's called Short Circuiting Policy. And it's really about the fact that while we have these grand ideas around energy policy, and we often pass them to great fanfare, when it comes to execution, they can get bogged down in the details. And this is really where special interest politics um, really comes to bear. And those people who have a lot to lose, we can't forget about that. And if we don't really pay attention to those things, you know, they will fight like crazy to do everything they can to limit the damage often, and, and that can undermine those policies that are so fundamental to making the changes we need to make. So we have to be very cognizant of what those transition costs are and what incentives they may give people. And if we don't take care of those things, we may pass you know grand vision sorts of bills, but the execution may lag um, because we haven't dealt with the details. And she does a really great job of just um, historically um, documenting examples of that and why we need to be very interested in, in taking care of those people who are affected, or at least being mindful of the effects of these big policies. Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, and I'm sure that you and I are going to be talking about exactly that issue many times in the weeks and months ahead. So one more time, uh, Rob Godby from the University of Wyoming, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been a really interesting discussion. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.